Mark's audio interview. This is Mark Dever in Washington, D.C., and I'm joined today here by the editorial director for Nine Marks, Jonathan Lehman. And not only is he the editorial director for Nine Marks, but he has written an excellent book that is clear and helpful on the topic of church membership and the responsibility church members have called Don't Fire Your Church Members. Jonathan, thank you for being here and giving us this time. Thank you, brother. Love to talk about the book. We don't often spend time interviewing each other. Uh, why is this book so significant that we should talk about this? I mean, don't most people know who's in charge of their church? Mm, I don't know if they know that or not. And in many cases, whether or not they know it, they uh, they themselves are not in charge of it, as, as maybe their elder ruled churches or some other form, or if they are in charge of it, uh, they might be bad expressions of it. I, I, I feel like... A lot of congregational churches give give the thing a bad name, and the purpose of the book is to help people think more clearly about what congregationalism is, and even more specifically, why they as members have a responsibility and a job to do. Now, what gives you the right to talk about this? Why, why are you somebody that the listener should listen to on this kind of topic? You're just Jonathan Lehman. You're uh, a brother who's a, a, an elder here with me. We're both pastors in the same church, Capitol Baptist Church, Washington, D.C. Uh, you've written some books. You yeah. have a Ph.D. Yeah. I don't was know. Your, was your Ph.D. on this? It, you know, my Ph.D. kind of built toward it. Uh -huh. my, my Ph.D. was thinking through structures of government, both in the church and in the state generally. Now, and we should say your Ph.D. has been widely praised but for some reason, we're not doing, University Press has just published it, uh, but we're not doing, called Political Church, but we're not doing an interview on that book. Why, why is that? It's slightly outside of what Nine Marks typically talks about. So you have a life beyond Nine Marks? Um, a little bit of one. Okay. Try, trying to scratch that out, but a little bit of one, right. sure. So back to your Nine Marks work, which mm -hmm. is Don't Fire Your Church Members, what makes you qualified to speak to us about this? Well, the, the good news in writing a book on congregationalism is that when you do, you immediately corner the market on it <laughs> because nobody's written at length on this topic. There have been shorter works. Uh, Stan Norman or, or John Hammett, you know, and uh, Tim George have, have written the shorter things on this, but a kind of a book-length treatment trying to make the case for congregationalism is just something that's not been done uh, for a while. And so qualifying me, number one, is just my interest in the topic. Number two... Um, I think I've, I've been thinking about these things for a number of years and wrote a number of other books on membership and discipline, which is sort of a segue to this topic. Uh, so eh, you, I think that's long and short of it. Do you think Christians today are not very careful about how they think through membership and polity issues? I think that's exactly right. I think there's a number of instincts in us as evangelicals, or at least evangelical Christians, that we want to push away from these quote-unquote institutional questions that's not the important thing. What's important is the gospel. True. And, uh, you know, we're living in fellowship and understanding of the gospel together. Some of these polity questions, st structure questions, uh, we tend to dismiss as non-essential and therefore completely unimportant. Let's say there's somebody who's really thinking about turning off this interview right now. They're thinking like, yeah, this does not really sound interesting to me. I'm going to find something else right now. Uh, what? What would you say, like, hold on, wait, wait, just a moment before you decide to switch out. What, what would be your argument for saying this is a topic that could be very helpful for them? Think about your average church staff member or leader or pastor. What, what this book is about, Don't Fire Your Church Members, and what we're talking about, 
Why is this maybe more helpful for them than they might realize at this moment as their finger is about to eliminate uh, us? Macro answer, micro answer. My, macro answer, good church structures help preserve the church and the gospel over time. Okay? So we're centered on the gospel. We want that. Well, in fact, Jesus has given us a way to protect and preserve the gospel in the life of the church, or in, in the life of, let's say, the church on earth. Uh, and that is the structures of the local church. That's the macro answer. The micro answer would be because church structure actually plays a crucial, critical role in your individual discipleship, in maturing in the faith, in your responsibilities to care for other Christians. If you want to say you follow Jesus, you need to care about how other Christians are doing, and church structure lays out that program. Well, it sounds to me like in that answer you're saying every Christian should be an elder because isn't it, isn't it the elder's job, the pastor's job's, to worry about, to be concerned about the maturity of the members? Yes, it's their job, but it's not exclusively their job. Think of Ephesians 4. It's given us apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers to equip the saints for what? For works of ministry until the whole body is built up. In other words, it's the pastor's job, yes, but it's also, also the church minister's uh, member's job to do the ministry of building up the body. We all have a job to do so that the verse 15 and 16, the whole body grows up, grows, building itself up as each part does its work. So that, that edification is our work assignment. Uh, mutual edification. I'm working to edify you. You're working to edify me. As an ordinary member, yes, we all have that job assignment. So how, how is our assignment then different than the elders? Uh, well, there, if we want to start getting into the weeds a little bit, I understand that the keys of the kingdom, first given to Peter and the apostles in Matthew 16, were given to the entire church in Matthew 18. I am responsible as a member of this church, and something we, uh, you know, I would say when I'm, when I'm doing a church membership interview, for instance, a new person coming into the church, and we kind of go through the whole membership interview, and I get to the end, I, and, and I say to them, listen, by joining this church, we are affirming and asking you to join us in the work of guarding and protecting the gospel in this place, 6th and A Street, Northeast, Washington, D.C., Capital Baptist Church, you have a job to do, and that is to help us protect the gospel. So that charge, as I understand it from Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, Galatians 1, who's Paul talking to? Not just the Galatian elders, but the churches. If anybody one preaches a different gospel than one I preach to you, let them be anathema. Right? In other words, you members of Galatian churches, you are all responsible for guarding and protecting the gospel. So how is it different to your question? How is it different? Well, I, I first want I just want to say what it is for the member. The member is to guard and protect the gospel. Um, what do the elders do? They train and equip the members to do that. So the elders don't guard and protect the gospel directly themselves. Of course they do. As members of the church. But as elders, they're training, equipping all the members to do that work. So think of 1 Corinthians 5. Paul says in verse 3, I've already exercised judgment in this church discipline yeah. situation. Then in verse 12, he says to the church, now you exercise judgment. In other words, what I've done, church, I want you to do. So what the elders do is they come before the church and they say, look, this is the gospel. Walk in this way. This is our judgment. This person is, is not a a believer so far as we're able to discern. We're, we're encouraging you to bring this person in. We're encouraging you to see this person out, excommunicate, whatever. So here we are as leaders saying this is the way, walk in it. Insofar as we follow Christ, follow us, go this way. That's their job, right? 
to set the example, to blaze the trail, to say this is the way. The church then comes along with the authority given to them by Jesus and affirmed by the Apostle Paul to say, yes, we are now lending our name, our authority to walk in this way. And in the process, the whole church has that collective responsibility of guarding, protecting gospel. And is that in part what a lot of churches have recognized historically with the church covenant? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. When you come together uh, and you covenant to one another, you are covenanting, agreeing to uh, uh, the, the protecting of one another in the gospel. So think of a husband and a wife in the covenant of marriage. When I, when I covenant in marriage, I am committing uh, to caring for you in the context of this marital relationship to guard and protect you according to the terms specified in the marital covenant. And in the same way, I'm going to do that, not in the same way, in an analogous way, I'm going to do that in church. I'm submitting myself to these people according to the terms of this covenant, both overseeing and being overseen. Yeah. And I guess what I'm curious about, and just thinking how people are going to be listening to this, is a lot of what you're saying is the job description or the job assignment of the member. Mm-hmm. I think we're more used to thinking about that for elders, for pastors. Certainly we are. And what you're arguing is the sort of 1970s every member ministry stuff was tapping into something more profound than it may have realized. Yes. That there was actually a design for us to be a kingdom of priests. Yeah. Uh, and that is what Paul is going on about, 1 Corinthians 11, 12, 13, 14, about the love that leads us to serve and do what's edifying for the body as a whole in the use of our gifts. One of the interesting things in your book, in chapter 3, The Keys to Office, is where you have this section called Another Proposal for Combining Elder and Congregational Authority, which I think gets at some of this stuff, which, you know, we could call the weeds, or we could just say this is actually where a lot of a lot of the real understanding of the implications of this are going on. Anyway, you have a large paragraph there on the middle of page 67 that I just want to read and then get you to comment on. Here then is how I put the congregational authority and elder authority sides together. And this will serve as a thesis for this and the next two chapters. So you're getting the heart of the book really in this. Yep. Having recommend, recommissioned members of the new covenant as priest kings, Jesus gives all believers, when gathered as congregations, the authority to administer their priestly and kingly duties with the keys of the kingdom. The whole congregation employs these keys through the ordinances, baptism of the Lord's Supper, to make formal declarations concerning the what and the who of the gospel. The what and the who of the gospel. The elders what's, on the, what's the right confession? Who's a true confessor? The elders, on the other hand, have a morally binding authority to lead or instruct the church in its use of the keys through their spirit-given and congregationally affirmed authority to teach. They will make recommendations on matters pertaining to the what and the who. The congregation then has an obligation to submit to those recommendations unless it has explicit or implicit biblical grounds for doing otherwise, which is to say their obligation to submit is relative, never absolute. This distinction between congregational authority and elder authority is not between possessing and exercising, which deprives the congregation of the exercise. It is a distinction between possessing and leading in the use, which means the exercise is shared by the elders and the congregation, which is to say, practically, Jonathan, if I'm understanding this, the elders are not able to excommunicate. 
That's exactly right. Only the congregation can excommunicate. That's exactly right. But normally the elders will lead the congregation in excommunication. Exactly right. And it's exactly parallel in the reception of new members. The elders do not have the authority to receive members to the church. Yeah. The congregation must receive members into the church. Right. The elders normally will lead the congregation in receiving members into the church. That's right. Okay, so run with it. This is that in, is that part part of the heart of don't fire your church members. To give a little context to that paragraph, what's going on is most people don't realize this, but uh, throughout church history, there has been some recognition of the authority of the whole congregation. Whether we're going back to the Didache, we're going to Cyprian, who even said. Uh, or, or, or Augustine. Augustine elected both. the pastor of his church. Oh, yeah, that's right. And so was Cyprian, and, and, he, and he called for that. And even he, Cyprian even called for the removal of, of, of bishops, if need be, by the congregation. Getting into Luther, to Calvin, to, to James Bannerman, sort of 19th century Presbyterian ecclesiologist par excellence, all of them acknowledge that the, the church must have some authority. So James Bannerman says, look, imagine you're on an island and all of the elders die. He actually uses this illustration. Surely, he says, the church, the congregation, has the authority to continue to be a church, to baptize, to, you know, Lord's Supper, to preach, if you have no elders. Uh, in other words, by virtue of our inclusion in the universal church, mm-hmm. all, say, Protestant evangelical Christians have acknowledged, uh, every member has the priesthood ability to exercise some sort of authority in the church. So then... You're, you're kind Laws, of pres- which would be why Paul and Titus 1 can refer to churches. Yeah, that's right. And want then Titus to help organize elders in those churches. You had churches throughout Crete, no elders, but they're still churches. Yeah. Okay, so so then the question becomes, how do we put that together? The fact that seemingly all Christians have authority here, which we just have to acknowledge, with another stream of texts that say submit to your leaders. And here's how Bannerman and a whole tradition of, say, Presbyterian authors, and it's even represented in today's PCA Book of Order, put it. A distinction between possession, the whole church possesses authority, mm-hmm. but the elders exercise the authority. That's the, that's the language. That's the formulation. We all possess it, but the elders exercise it. To which my response is, if I can't exercise it, I don't really possess it, do I? I mean, I show up and I have the keys to office, but I'm not allowed to use those keys. What do you... I can't remove you if you're preaching heresy? In what sense then do I possess it? Plus, I don't think uh, sufficient attention is paid within that tradition to series of texts like Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, and so forth. And so what that paragraph is saying uh, is let, let, let's, let's re-understand, let's try to understand better this relationship between congregational authority and elder authority. We all possess it, that's correct. But what the elders do uniquely is lead us in the use of the keys. One last comment here, Mark, if I may. Um, Matthew 18 and excommunication is crucial, and I think people often overlook this. Sometimes people will say, well, okay, so they exercise authority just in excommunication. Well, excommunication is crucial because, as, as they understood the Westminster Assembly, as William Goodwin put it, um, uh, Thomas Goodwin. Thomas Goodwin, thank you. But, but uh, ch- ch- church, the, the keys are the substratum of all government, mean, meaning church discipline is the highest authority in the church. Uh, think about the state. If I can kill you because I have the power of the sword, I have the power to raise your taxes, conscript you for the army, make all the laws. In the same way, the highest authority in the church is whoever can excommunicate. If I can remove you from membership in this church, then I can kind of do everything else. And that's why Matthew 18 and this 
uh, illustration of excommunication there is a crucial one. So whoever can excommunicate has the highest authority. So some people want to maintain the elders can do it. And that's just not what the text says. That's not what the passage says. It says the church does it there in verses 18 and uh, 17 and 18. Mm-hmm. So... Um, the book, again, is Don't Fire Your Church Members, The Case for Congregationalism by Jonathan Lehman. You can hear that subtitle coming out now in Jonathan's comments. Uh, if you've looked at this book, you're looking at it right now, it has seven chapters. And I would tell you one way to read the book that might not be obvious is if you, chapters one to three are his, his heavy theological chapters. I would say you could just pick it up with chapter four mm-hmm. and read four to seven see how this works, what he's talking about, if this makes sense to you. If you have more questions, you can go back and dig and read chapters 1, 2, 3. Uh, John, I remember talking about this when you were writing the book, just saying that the first part was was uh, theologically dense. Yep. Uh, important work. Uh, I'm glad it's in writing. I'm sure you're glad it's in writing. Uh, but it, it would be possible that some brother who might not really make it through those first three chapters or starting and thinking the whole book's like this, if he starts with chapter 4 and reads 4 to 7, he's got there 100 pages of very practical edification um, that then he would understand even what he has more questions about by reading the first three chapters. Yeah, let me give you a lay of the land here. Yeah. What, what I wanted to do in this book is write a book for church leaders and to some extent academics. It's, it's, it's you know, in the BH, B&H academic series. That kind of, be, be precisely because what I said before, nobody's written at length on this in a while. I wanted to say, okay, here's the volume that kind of tries to do the whole thing and establish that foundation. Even if it's slow going, even if I'm building my case slowly, that work needs to be done. So even if a few readers are going to be, oh, this is too dense in the beginning, I'm just going to go ahead and do that for this volume. Now, what I try to do in another short little book that, that I just did, Understanding the Congregation's Authority, is to provide the shorter more quickly accessible for the average church member in which in chapter one, I say, here's the picture on the cover of the box. You know, think of a, of a puzzle. Yeah. In this book, I don't show you the picture on the cover of the box at the beginning. I just start laying out piece by piece by piece. In that book, I say, hey, look, here's the picture on the whole cover. Yeah. Now let's go back and build piece by piece, but very quickly and briefly. So yeah, this, this book does, it's aimed more at church leaders rather than members, and it does mean to be more foundational. Uh, Jonathan, uh, we mean this to be a short interview. I think we've gotten to the point. Uh, the, the keys are had. The authority is had by the congregation. Because we're talking about authority, there's one thing I always think we want to give as an asterisk when we talk about authority. There can be an abdication of authority. So we're saying the congregation has authority. Some congregations don't exercise that authority as they should. But then there can be a kind of abuse of authority. And we're used to talking about that with individual pastors, with elders. But the congregation can also abuse its authority. How, how is that the case? Yeah, uh, congregations can fail to recognize the truth of passages like Hebrews thirteen seventeen, which call us to submit to our leaders, right? They have some overwrought idea of democracy in their heads. They think this is a town hall meeting. They think they can speak their voice and not listen to what their pastors are recommending, encouraging them in good biblical judgment to do, right? And so many of the, uh, you know, uh, Worst case scenarios, horror stories that people have about congregationalism that cause them to move away from congregationalism become very relevant factors here. Uh, I can think of one church in um, a southern state where they called the pastor the day before a wedding of two African Americans and said, "Uh, Pastor, we don't want you marrying this African American couple in our church tomorrow. Can you do it at the black church down the street? And the pastor horribly submitted to the church 
calls the couple and says, hey, would you guys mind if we just reschedule it down the street? Okay, well, that there is an abuse of congregational authority of the worst kind, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, all, all sorts of reasons we could talk about that. So, yeah, there, there, is a, there is the possibility of congregationalism done poorly, abusively, just like I would say there's instances of other forms of church government done abusively and poorly. And is there any other kind of abuse that in your nine marks work you regularly encounter? I think the more common form of abuse these days you'll find in elder rule churches from, from the leadership. Um, you know, uh, overweening pastors, heavy shepherding, um, uh, situations where pastors are clearly going up beyond scripture, where they're not uh, dealing with situations on a case-by-case, -case, but they're slapping down policies that try to cover a multitude of offenses. Uh, so, yeah, I think probably the more common abuse these days comes from the pastor side than the congregational side. At least that's my sense. If I was living in 1960s South, maybe I would say something different. I, I, I don't know. Um, final thing I want to get to is just what's the use of the book? I mean, if, if I'm not particularly interested in hearing a case for congregationalism, why do you want to tell me, John Lehman, I should take a, take a little time and read this book, especially uh, chapters 4, 5, 6, 7, you know, read the easier part to read. Maybe I skip the chapters 1 to 3. What do you think? And I would encourage you not to skip 1 to 3. But okay, and can, I read four, can I read 4, 5, 6, 7 first? Sure you can. Uh, gosh, whatever. Um, here, here's, here's, why, here's why I would, I would tell you this is an important book. Because you want to strengthen your members, not weaken them, not innervate them, not undermine them. Uh, let me give you two churches. Envision it as two exercise classes. Exercise class one, I stand in front of the class and I say, here's how you do the jump rope, here's how you lift the weights. Everybody see? Okay, go home. Class over. That's class one. Class two, okay, here's how you do the jump rope, here's how you lift weights. Now let me put a jump ropes and weights in your hands. I'm going to walk around as you do it and I'm going to train you in it. Okay, which of those two exercise classes is going to be stronger? Well, clearly the second one, right? I think that's what congregationalism gives. When you fire your church members, when you take away authority from them, not only are you being unbiblical, you're actually weakening them. I think you're tempting them towards complacency, tempting them towards nominalism, ultimately tempting them towards liberalism, right? Ah, oh, the pastor's got it. We don't have to worry about guarding the gospel here. It's up to those guys. They're the experts. They have the seminary degrees. They've been ordained. Not me. I'm, I'm just here as a spectator. Right? So I think this is a crucial topic because it's Jesus' discipleship program. It's how Jesus actually means to train and equip Christians. And if, and if you're in the business of doing that, uh, let me commend the book. Well, I would commend the book. I read it in manuscript. I use it in the internship program here. I don't know another book like it. Um, even if you're listening and you're disinterested in polity, I would encourage you, if you're interested in following Jesus and you want to know what Jesus intends us to do as his followers, Jonathan has explored the form of a very basic part of our obedience. So, enough time in the interview. Go grab the book. Have a good time. Jonathan, thank you for giving this time with us. Thank you, brother.